What a great time of worship, uh, just to be in the presence of the Lord and to declare those awesome truths, the power of the cross. It's so great to be together today on this Father's Day and just celebrating not only our earthly dads, but also our Heavenly Father and to be in worship in this way. Uh, we are in this uh, new series called Passport to the Mediterranean. And as I'm thinking about Father's Day uh, in, in light of this as well, and I think about, um, think about my own dad today, and so I hope he's, he might be watching today. Happy Father's Day, Dad. I love you. I just think about the model of uh, Christian faith that he modeled in my life, and uh, as well as my father-in-law who does the same. And it's also a privilege in my life to be a dad. It's one of the greatest roles, one of the greatest privileges that I have as I look at my daughters and just to get to share that role that, that I get to be their dad. Like, that's so awesome. And I, I love that, and I'm so blessed by my family. One of the things, um, as I think about my own childhood growing up, was uh, one of the things my, my dad embodied was just being courageous and being um, bold and just had a, had a hunger and a taste and desire to experience the world, and he wanted to share that with us as our family. And so we did, um, we did some epic road trips as well. Like, uh, have any of you guys ever done a road trip, a family road trip? Yeah, yeah. We did one that it might be hard to top. I mean, I, I, we drove from... Zurich, Switzerland, when we used to live in Switzerland growing up, to Beirut, Lebanon. How's that for a road trip? 2,250 miles. We actually began, so that was a, I was just a kid at the time. It was in the, in the late 70s. And so here we have a picture. This is us still in, um, before my youngest uh, sister was born, we were still in, we were going over the Alps, and that was a, a car. It was an old, a, a new Audi at the time that my, my parents had, and, and we were getting ready to drive to Lebanon. Now, we took a route that took us down through Italy, and then we got, uh, we took a ferry. This next picture here, you'll see a boat that took us across to Greece. There we go. That's us uh, loading up the, the car would go on there, and we would then so drove across to Greece. And then we ended up in Corinth, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit there. So I'll, you'll be happy to know I, I no longer have the Speedos. I lost the Speedos back then. But uh, <laughs> when in Europe, you know? I mean, as, I'm German-born. We're European. It's all, it's all good. It's all natural. Um, so that's actually, unfortunately, the way the picture's cut off, that is actually Corinth in the back there. But we'll, we'll get there in just a moment. So yeah, you can move on from this picture. We're actually taking a, a, a cruise through the, the Mediterranean. We're going to be looking at some different cities. And so if you don't get to travel this summer, this is great. Come here on Sundays, and we'll get you a little taste of, of the Mediterranean and going to different places and, and what took place there. And so one of the, uh, what we're using as an itinerary through this travel is, is the New Testament. These letters in, that we have in, in, in our New Testament, being with Romans and Corinthians, right, and Galatians, Colossians, Ephesians, all these, these great letters are written to very specific places, very specific people and times. And so we want to get behind that a little bit, discover what these cities are, what's the context that these early believers experienced, and how does that relate to us? Because we want to know these are actual real places. You can still visit them today. And I'm so thankful that I got to see some of them when I was younger, some when I was older. And, and it, it's amazing when you get into a place, just like when you uh, travel now, if you travel through the United States or through Europe or through different pl places in the world, any historical site, when you go there and you stop and you pause and you think, what happened there 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago? There's something about being in those places that brings the story to life and, and makes it come alive. And so we think about these letters that we have. It's not just a Bible verse or some scripture that fell from heaven. It was written in a context, in real-world setting. And so today we're going to go and we're going to dive into Corinth. We're going to visit Corinth. So Corinth is a city that's, uh, that's located, actually it's in, it's in Athens, I mean it's in Greece, modern-day Greece. 
and it's only about 48 miles from uh, 48 miles from Athens. So it's not very far at all, right? So when you think about, you know, right today, like less than an hour's drive, and so it was heavily influenced by Athens. And when we think about ancient cultures, you can't help but think about the Greeks, right? You can't help but think about Athens and all that transpired there. And today, you know, Athens and, and Corinth, they're, they're modern cities. And so if you walk in these modern cities, you can see a picture here of a street uh, just, you know, with, with shops and things like that. I think we have it up there. Yeah, I mean, this is, this, is, this is Corinth today. So you can, you know, rent a car and you can go shop and you can do all that stuff. And so we don't think about that maybe when we're, when we're reading this, this, uh, this letter. But, uh, and today it's got about mm, 30 to 40,000 residents, but back in the first century, it was a, it was a, a booming city. It had about 200,000 residents back in that, in that time. And one of the reasons it was so, um, it, it became such a growing city after, because really, B.C., you know, about 150 years uh, before Christ, the city was actually burned down, and it was kind of desolate for a lot of years until Julius Caesar, about 44 B.C., he, um, uh, he, restarted the city, and, he, and, and out of that city began this growing metropolis, and it was strategically located between two bodies of water, connecting the east and the west, and so it had a port, and here we got a picture of the old port that, that you can still visit today. That's not the old port. Uh, that's the new port. That's the old port. Um, <laughs> so it's still, we still have remnants there, and you can imagine just, you know, hundreds of years ago, just ships that were coming and passing, and what happens when you have a port? You have lots of trade. You've got, a, you know, exchange of ideas and goods and people from all over the world, and so that was Corinth. And then today, um, actually, this is partly what you see there. Isn't this just a remarkable thing? There's a four-mile um, canal that uh, was one of the challenges even for Corinth. Corinth, it had the port, but it had four miles to go over this isthmus, 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 that isthmus, that's a hard word to say. Um, and they didn't have the technology yet to create this full canal, and so they would actually put ships on rollers and bring them through. But in 1893, some French engineers figured this out, and they dug this, the, this canal through, and even today, you can take these, these big ships through that canal in Corinth. So pretty, pretty remarkable place. But when you think about back in, in history and you go through, uh, you know, that, that, um, that time and place, and you kind of imagine Greece, and you imagine Corinth and things that were taking place there, maybe you picture like men in togas, right? They're, they're exchanging ideas, right? There's a, there's a lot of things that were going on in Athens and the, the home of philosophy and, and where all of these different ideas began to emerge from history and, and there's conversation. And then you have this, uh, the, oftentimes on this high rock, this, this place is called um, the Acropolis of Corinth right here. So you see this, this, this big rock. There's also one in, in, uh, in Athens. And so on top of that rock, you see some ruins up there. That was where ideas were exchanged. That was the place where, where the marketplace of, of ideas came together and people had conversations and, and they were discussing the politics and religion of that day. Now, what we know from ancient Greek, uh, Greece is that you probably just studied this in school as well too, like right, the Greek gods. Last week we talked about Rome and the Roman gods and so in, in ancient Greece it was all about the various gods, right? And so you had all these stories, all this great mythology that, that, was, that was shared through generations and trying to make sense of the world and trying to figure those things out and so that was a part of their religion and actually the gods were worshipped and they had temples to the various gods. And so um, we have a temple here and this next picture here is a temple of uh, Apollo and we still see, you see seven, eight of these pillars that are still standing here, it used to have 38 pillars. And so you can go back and you can see this was built for the worship of gods. And this was built, again, for the worship of Apollo. And so when we look at this great city and we think about its history, now we think in terms of, of Paul. 
Paul, who was a, a, an early follower of Jesus, had a radical transformation, and he felt this calling to go and to share the good news of Jesus with the whole world. And the main world there that, that was in, under their influence and connection was the Mediterranean. And so he would travel and he would go on different missionary journeys. And so it took him to some of these different cities. And so one of these cities was Corinth. And so as he's, as he's traveling, and, and, and he came to Corinth, and we read that he spent about 18 months in Corinth. So about a year and a half he spent there in that city. He's uh, helping people come to faith. He's sharing the good news. Uh, a group of believers is starting to form. And this is around 50 A.D., around that time. If, so if you think about, you know, after, after Christ's um, resurrection, Paul never personally met Christ in the flesh. He met him in a vision, in a, in a powerful, transformative experience. And so here he is 50 years later now. He's starting these churches. And like these new believers, now they were struggling to live in this culture that I just described. They were struggling with what to do in, in, this, in this polytheistic community. What do we do with all these ideas and this knowledge and these philosophies that are here? A community and a city and a world that, that, that had lots of wealth and trade and exposure to a broader world. There was also a lot of, lot of challenges and promiscuity that was going on. Sexual immorality was, was rampant. It was part of temple worship and a and lot of things that were, that were deemed um, acceptable in the community that, that, that they were just wrestling with. What does it now mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be in the church and to, to live in this way? And they dealt with challenges within their community. Within the church itself, there, there was lawsuits between believers. There was, again, sexual immorality that they were dealing with. They were discussing different theologies and who they were following. They were trying to figure out, how does worship work? What do we do when we gather together? Some people have this idea. Others have this idea. Challenges with marriage. And so First and Second Corinthians deal was with all kinds of stuff. And so what did Paul do? He wrote a letter. He wrote a letter to him. After he established the, uh, the church, he left, but he continued to hear about things that were happening. And actually, there were four letters that, that we know about, and, and based on what we read through the scriptures, but you might be thinking, we only have First and Second Corinthians, if you know the New Testament. We have two of those letters preserved, but they also reference some other letters. So Paul was constantly writing back to the church. He was trying to help them know how to navigate uh, what, it, what it means to be the church, but he hears of these struggles, and he heard of these different challenges, and, and even in First Corinthians chapter 1, the 10th verse, he says this. He says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. He lets us know why he's writing. He lets us know, and even as you read, again, the rest of the letter, and you begin to hear this context, you understand why he's writing. There's, there's, there are people starting to follow different teachers and leaders, and they're disagreeing on, well, what does the Bible say about, you know, sexual immorality? What does the Bible say about marriage? What does the Bible say about truth and knowledge? What about the resurrection? So he's like, let me help you. And they gathered together, and they would read these letters from Paul to the church, and they would pass them around. It's possible that this letter made it back to Athens and to some other areas around. And so Paul was trying to teach them. Now we might say, okay, what does a letter written 2,000 years ago to a people that lived 5,000 years ago have anything to do with us? I mean, what, what significance is there? But you look at these two worlds, and in some ways similar to, to Rome last week, we look at that and we look at Corinth, you look at this place, you look at the city and you think, hmm, do we deal with any of the same issues? Are we in a place, are we in a, in a culture that has wealth? that has a global impact, that has, uh, you know, the melting pot of nations and beliefs and religions and 
thoughts and ideas where we have lots of different ideas about what sexual ethics look like in our culture and things that are being debated and, and what people claim to be truth, right? All these things, we can see it in our own culture. And so Paul is writing and saying, not only how do we address the culture, but what do we do as faithful people, those who are trying to follow Christ? How do we respond to the world around us? And then how do we allow those things or don't allow those things to influence what happens within us as the church, within the body? And so today, that's what I want to look at. And there's so many different themes. I actually had, had to cut my sermon down once and third, and then I had to cut it down another third. There's just so much stuff here that I just encourage you to read it. And with all of these different letters that we have in the Bible, don't just, you know, sometimes it's good to read a verse and to read a chapter. I encourage you just, you know, I did this too even as I'm, as I'm working out or sometimes I just put an audio, you know, the, the Bible on audio and just listen to an entire book, the whole, all of 1 Corinthians. Just listen to it in one fell swoop. It doesn't even take all that long. There's something about listening to it or even just, you know, reading it in one setting that you get a different sense of what was happening. You get the bigger picture instead of just like a single verse. And so what I want to do is I look at First and Second Corinthians, even though it deals with all different kinds of issues, the one I want to focus in on is what is truth? This idea of knowledge, this idea of, of how do we understand what, what is right and what is wrong and dealing with religion, and especially as we think about ancient Greece, right? We think about all the debates and all those things. So I want to look at that right now because when we look at truth, we look at knowledge, we think about the Greeks, we think about that time. And even today when we think about um, knowing truth, we think about knowledge, we think about what is the meaning of life? What is right? What is wrong? What is morality? Why am I here? Why do I exist? And these were some of the great debates that took place. And what's the best approach to live in society? And how should a society function together? And these were all the kinds of things that were being debated. And again, you think about Greece, you think names like what? Socrates, some of these great philosophers. Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus, some of these, these, these great thinkers. The birthplace of Western philosophy came through this culture, and this was the very culture that, that the church was trying to exist in, that Paul was writing to. And they would go into these different places. Here's the Agora. This is in, uh, we got a picture here. This is one of those public spaces where they would get together, and here would be a great exchange of ideas. Now, obviously, it's in ruins now, but they would have these public spaces where people would come together and they would just begin to share ideas and they would have different thoughts and, 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 and communicate that. So they would talk about philosophy and poetry, politics, ethics, science, moral issues, current events. And, and it wasn't just this debate that took place, but then skilled orators would stand up. And one thing that was really highly valued in the society was not just what you said, but how you said it. Were you persuasive? Were you articulate? How did you present yourself, and, and was there logic and reason? How did you formulate those arguments? And that was all very highly valued in that culture, to have sound reason, to have good knowledge, to have the things based on truth and evidence, and to craft these arguments, and then to try to persuade. It wasn't just to present ideas. There was a goal to persuade other people, and oftentimes then that led to different debates. It would people saying, well, I follow this school of thought, or I follow this teacher, and, and, I, wanna, uh, and I hold these truths. And so there was debate, and there was a, a lot of this exchange going on in the Socratic questioning, right, coming out of that society, asking those types of questions. We also know as Greece as the birthplace of democracy. Why? Because in this public square, in this public setting, 
statesmen, politicians would also come, and they would share some of their ideas for the city or for the community or for the country, and they would try out their ideas, and they would see how people would respond. And out of that, they would develop policy, and they would develop different approaches, and that was the idea of the public square, of people speaking into um, what was happening in their world. And so again, we come to that, and we still come back to this question, like they did, we do today, what is truth? And we can relate to that. We can relate to that question because today, there's a really popular thing to be and that's to, be, to try to be an influencer. I never even knew about that like until a few years ago. Like some people's goals is I want to be an influencer. What do you want to influence? You want to influence people. Want to, and, and that's not a bad thing, right? You want to influence people, but there's this idea like I just want to be someone that people follow and, 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 and that I influence them in a certain direction. But it's in a direction of truth. Politicians, leaders, others, they want to influence in a certain direction. And they want to say, this is what's true. This is what's best for America. This is what's best for your community. This is what's best for your kids. People have different ideas. What is true? And then we throw in this new thing that we've just been hearing way too much about and we're going to for the next however many years, AI, artificial intelligence, right? The question, what is true? Can you even believe what you see anymore? Can you believe what you hear? Can you believe what's putting out? Is it true? Where is this coming from? And so this quest for truth, here we are 2,000 years later and our society is still seeking this answer. What is truth? And like in Greece, in this context of many different religions and different gods, this is a popular thing that we see today. Coexist, right? Coexist. This is our community, this is our society, this is our world coming together. There's different religions, different faiths, and, and saying, you know, can't we all just get along? What is truth? Some would say, that's truth. Or is it truth? Or is it not truth? What is true? Is everyone true? Can some be right? Can some be wrong? And so we still find ourselves asking these, these same questions. And even when it comes to these religions, there's other religions that have become actually even more popular today. Religion that has been replaced by politics. Would you agree that politics seems to be the new religion? There seems to be more political fervor than religious fervor in our country. And ideologies and things that are being tried to, 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 to be shared left and right. There's other religions, materialism, success, wealth. That's a religion in our country. Religion around relationships and sexual freedom and sexual ethics, strong, strong opinions and, and discussions happening in those directions. Independence is another religion. I want to do my own thing, personal happiness. These are the religions of our day, and then some would claim to be nons, right? Have you heard of the nons? Not, don't claim any religion. Whatever makes you happy. Here's one. What's your truth? By definition, that almost can't even be true, right? But that's what, that is the most popular common thought about truth in our world today is you have your truth, I have my truth. That's great, that's great, you have your truth, I have your, let's just all just get, get along, we all have our truths. And it sounds so good. And it's a way that make, makes us think that just everybody just find your way, but you know what I see is lostness. When everybody has their own truth, there is no truth. You can't everyone just have their own truth. All these religions, of course we need to coexist. We do, that's just, that's just fact. <laughs> There's nothing powerful about that. We coexist, we're on this planet. We need to tolerate. What do we tolerate? Do we tolerate though if somebody's different than us? That's the whole point, right? But yet if we're different than others, sometimes I don't feel like Christianity's being tolerated very well these days in a, in a climate of tolerance. And so we see and we experience these tensions today. And though we don't have maybe a big rock or a mountain that we climb up and have these 
public debates, we have new, uh, a new marketplace of ideas. It plays out online, right? It plays out in media. The news media, the, the t television media, right, is trying to get ideas across. Social media. I mean, how much of our social feed is filled with people's perspectives and ideas and sharing this story and this article and what this person said? And how much is everyone an influencer who has a camera and a selfie and can sit in their car and pontificate about the world, right? How many of those videos are out there? This is the way. This is the truth. This is like, how do we figure that out? So we see it everywhere. We see the public square taking place in public spaces where there's, there's rallies, different things being celebrated. Then there's protests and silent protests and violent protests and, and getting you know, into these different places. There's conferences. There's TED Talks. There's church. So many different places we gather and say, what is truth? What do we build and base our life on? We can relate to that so much today. And even though I think that we have this idea of civil discourse, is this still civil? <laughs> you know, is this, is this still civil? Because today, the way that you get your idea around is not just to share your idea. You have to be more radical. You have to be more extreme. You have to be louder. You have to scream louder. You have to have clickbait, right? You have to get attention. And now it's not just about attacking ideas, but it's about attacking people. And so we see a lot of that in our world today. And so we ask this question, what is truth? It's what the ancient Greeks asked. It's what the Corinthians asked. It's what we still seek as a society. And Paul writes into this setting. Has some of this infiltrated into the church? And how does the church, and how do believers, these young believers trying to figure out this new faith that they've discovered, how do we live that out in this world? And so I want to dive into that, and I'm going to read quite a few different scriptures. Um, so if you want to follow along, or we'll have them on the screen, but we're going to be in, uh, I'm going to start here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. So we think about, again, these different schools of thought. Paul is writing now to the church. He said, some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Right, so he's seeing the same thing that's happening in society that's beginning to happen within the church. That Well, I follow this school of thought. I follow this theology. I have this belief. And he's saying, is there a division among Christ? And the emphatic answer is no. There's not to be any division within the body of Christ. There is one gospel. There is one truth. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died for our sins. He came, he loved us, and he sacrificed his life for us. And he rose again, and he came to give us new life. And Paul's whole life is committed to sharing this good news that we talked about last week in more detail, that he, the way that he laid it out in, in Romans. But here's the problem. This message that we share, it doesn't quite go over so well in society, does it? No. Have you experienced that? Oh, yeah. Or is it only Diane? <laughs> <laughs> Right, I mean, it, it, and so many of us right now who are believers, who are followers of Christ might feel like, well, you know, it just doesn't play very well out there. And then people look at that and sometimes they look at the church and look at what we believe and say, that's just, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. It's foolishness. Well, here's what Paul writes, continuing verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. Imagine saying that in the public square in Corinth in those days, in Athens, right? The Bible says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. They thought themselves very wise. They thought themselves very intelligent. How about today? How does that play out today? In our great centers of learning, 
colleges and, and institutions and PhDs and all kinds of knowledge and study out there to say, it's foolishness. This wisdom, I mean, it doesn't play very well. What's going on here? We have this quest for knowledge. We have this quest for truth, but it's all apart from God in our world. It's we want to find knowledge and truth. We want the answers to this world, to how to live and to what it means, and we're looking for it everywhere except Scripture. We want to find it apart from God because God is faith and religion and it's in this category, but if we want real knowing, real learning, and we want the, the tangible, practical things, we have to study it, we have to find it in this way. And so Paul goes on and he actually asks this very similar question. He says uh, in verse 20, so where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? So that's still a relevant question, right? Where do, what's, what do we do with this? You got all this wisdom, you got all these great teachers, philosophers, debaters, they're all around, and yet God's saying their intelligence is going to come to nothing. What, what do we do with this? He continues, he says, God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it, get this phrase, that the world would never know him through human wisdom. Hmm. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. The world will never know him through, through human wisdom. And so the world can spend thousands of years looking for God through the most advanced thinking and logic and science and research and study, and they will never know him. They will never discover. It will never lead you to have the definitive answer about God and to see all those pieces. It's just part of God's design in the universe. And so that, that kind of seems messed up, though, doesn't it? Like, why would we do that? Why would we have knowledge and wisdom and education and all those things? What, what, what's going on here? Human wisdom alone was, is never going to arrive at discovering God. But he continues on. He says, so when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. <laughs> are people today ever offended? Do people ever say it's all nonsense? I mean, there's a big conflict right here, right? I mean, these two, this tension that we're, that we're seeing we believe in faith. It's the power of God. It's, every, it's nonsense. It's foolishness. And, the others, and then Paul said, no, but that's foolishness. What's going on here? He said, but to those who are called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Where's the power of God come from? Where does the wisdom of God come from? Christ. So you can do all your searching. You can look at everything. But if Christ is not part of the equation, you don't discover the wisdom of God the creator of this, this universe. In verse 25, the foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength, Paul writes. He's saying, so we can do all this, we can do all the study, we can be so smart, and we can have all the answers and pontificate about everything, but, but the smartest we'll ever get, is that's just, that doesn't even reach where God's wisdom just begins. All the effort, all the strength won't even begin to touch where God just begins with his. And so does that mean it's all useless? Does that mean we should throw out all these things? What do we do? But yet human wisdom continues to try to find the answers. And here's the crazy thing. How much of man's human wisdom, how much of our cultural wisdom is actually in direct, direct uh, opposition? Thank you. You, got, you helped me there. In direct opposition to God's word. How much of this, what this world claims as truth is out and outright described as sin in, in God's word? And so we have this, this tension of what is true. 
And we look everywhere for this truth in our world and society. We look everywhere but God. So how do we discover godly wisdom? How do we come to this truth? 1 Corinthians 3, 18 and 19. Paul writes this to the church. He says, stop deceiving yourselves. If you think you are wise by the world's standards, you need to become a fool to be truly wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. That doesn't play very well either, right? <laughs> you want wisdom, you gotta be a fool. Nobody wants to be a fool. Who wants to be a fool? I don't wanna be a fool. What's, God, what's, he, what's he saying here? He's, beginning, he's letting us know that, that, it's, that it's not just foolishness in the way that, that we think we're fools, it's the way the world sees it as foolish. He's saying become that, lean into that. But I think it's another kind of foolishness as well. It's a foolishness that simply says, relative to God's knowledge and wisdom and all-surpassing power, there's a humility that says, I don't know all the answers. I don't have it all figured out. And I need God, and it's a sobering estimation of ourselves, realizing I have limited knowledge. It's when we put that bedrock into place, that's when we begin to learn and discover. And of course God wants us to, 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 to continue to, to seek knowledge, to have new learning, to explore and to, to, to discover this world that he's created for us. But when we don't know the ultimate goal is to discover God in that, when we don't have that, what are we striving for? It's never going to lead us there. But when we have that foundation, all these different pieces begin to make sense. We get to see how God begins to reveal himself through the beauty of science and knowledge and wisdom. But he says, here's the key piece to how do we get this? Verse, we read in, second, uh, in the second chapter, verse 10. But it was to us that God revealed these things, how? By his spirit. For his spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secret and we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. It's through the spirit. That's where we get to re God's secrets revealed. When we come in faith, when we come in surrender, when we admit we don't know it all, we don't have it all, God, we are lost without you, and we need this truth, we need this foundation. All of a sudden, through God's spirit, through his forgiveness and new life, we see it a new way. We see it in a different way. Our eyes are open. The deeper secrets, the truths are revealed. And even Jesus said in John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. There's so much, there's so much more here. And he keeps playing these, these differences and he's saying, look, we have to get our minds in the right place. We have to understand. And he even says in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, we only see now through a mirror dimly. We see just a reflection of what is. We don't have it all yet, but one day we're gonna see it all. One day God's gonna reveal it all. And in this amazing chapter, in chapter 13, where he talks about having all knowledge and all wisdom, and you can speak all the languages, he said all that stuff, knowledge and all those things are great, but he says one thing. He said it'll amount to nothing if you don't have what? If you don't have love. If you're just staying out here, if you're just in this space up here, but it doesn't translate into love, what else matters? He says three things will last forever in, in chapter 13, 13. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And he says, let love be your highest goal. So what do we do with this? We seek after God. We put the foundation with him and we surrender to him and all of a sudden we begin to see in a new way. We begin to engage in this world in a new way. And in this letter, after he builds this up, he talks about some very specific things in this world. How do, we, how do we deal with this world, with our sexual ethics? He talks about that. How do we deal with marriage? How do we deal in relationships? 
He talks about those things. In different letters, he says, when we have that foundation, then we can build our lives on truth. And it's God's word that radically, radically, radically transforms us. I want to end with this verse in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's such a powerful verse in the second letter he wrote. He says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. It's transformation. The power of, of God's word, the power of God's truth to change our lives, that you are a new person, a new life, a new creation. And so as I think about this context, this, this world that, that Paul related to, that I think we can relate to today, he's saying build your life on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Humble yourself before God. Allow him to transform you. And watch what happens as God's spirit begins to reveal truth to you. Then as you pursue academia and mathematics and psychology and architecture and social work and medicine and computer technology and all those great pursuits that we have, we get to see God's hand in all those pieces and how he's put it together. And so we build our lives on that truth, but ultimately it's about transforming us into people who love and who serve and who give our lives to him. And so I think about that as a church, that we have this foundation. That's, that's why we come together, that we continue to build our life on God's word and on his truth, and that no matter what is going on in this world, what is being touted out there, that we hold fast and hold true to God's never-changing truth. He said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. Truth is found in Jesus Christ. Knowledge is found in Christ. And so without Christ, we can't have it. So let's pursue that, let's seek that, and let's build our lives on that and watch how it transforms us. We want that for our families. We want that for our church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks for, for this great word, for so many truths, God, in, in your word that, that we can spend days and weeks just in, in the, these letters alone discovering who you are, and I thank you for revealing yourself to us, that we can know. We don't have to guess who is God. We know who God is. He's found through Jesus Christ. Jesus, you've gave your life to us, and so we want to give it back to you. We want to honor you. We want to live for you. We want to build our lives on these truths, and God, when there's so much confusion in this world, God, may, may we drown out all the other noise and all the competing voices, God, that are just clamoring for attention. And can we get back into your word? Can we get back to your truth? Can we discover, God, what you have for us, the best life for us? And so, God, we, we put you in the first place. And Father, for any here that, that are seeking you, that don't know you, God, that there would be a humbling and a surrendering and just the freedom that comes and in letting go and saying, God, here's my life. Open my heart, open my mind to all you have for me. So God, we give you thanks on this day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.